This is Words Matter with Norm Ornstein. Well, these are big things that matter a lot. And Dr. Kavita Patel. So it's a pretty incredible chunk of change. Hello and welcome to Words Matter from the DSR Network. Each week, Norm Ornstein and I will talk about the issues facing our country as we head into the midterms and what our leaders are saying and doing about them. Today, we're going to take a deeper dive into something that Norm and I have been discussing for weeks now, and that's the Inflation Reduction Act. It's incredible history up until its recent passage, as well as what I think is hopefully a shared viewpoint between Norm and myself about the ability for the IRA to have potentially the greatest impact in our generation on a number of areas, including healthcare, climate change, tax, energy policies, and so on and so on. So thanks so much for joining us and hope you enjoy the show. Norm, it feels like we're still seeing a a little bit of the, I would say, initial kind of rollout as people are taking apart the onion that is the IRA and understanding pieces of it. I think a lot got put on by the title, the ability to, quote, reduce inflation, close quote. But I don't know if that's really doing justice to the fact that this, in my mind, has been one of the most significant domestic policy achievements and global policy achievements of a Congress, again, in my lifetime. What's your take, Norm? And we can go deeper into some of the provisions and hopefully not only educate ourselves, but uh, join in with our listeners as well. So you know, a couple of things just initially, Kavita. One is that this seems to me to be a, a perfect topic for a podcast named Words Matter. And that's true in two ways. The first is, as you just suggested, the name of the act. It doesn't do justice itself to the substance of what's there. I understand why they chose the name, because we're right now at a time where inflation has been a big concern of Americans, and you want to protect yourself against the charges that the things that you're doing, dramatic changes in health policy and in the the most significant climate changes perhaps ever, that could be labeled as big government spending and inflationary. So you can understand it, but it takes away from an understanding itself of what's there. The second reason that it's relevant to a words matter frame is, as we have seen so often, the nature of the media is not to talk about what's in a bill. It's to talk about the politics and the horse race surrounding it. As we've said many times before, and we know is the case, the not terribly well-named Build Back Better bill, which was the precursor to this, had dramatic changes that were supported by overwhelming majorities of all different categories of Americans, Democrats, Republicans, independents and across the board. But the press coverage never looked at those things. And frankly, the administration and the Democrats in Congress failed to frame it that way themselves. It was all about the maneuvering around, will it pass? Won't it pass? Will it be 3.5 trillion or 2 trillion or 1.7 trillion? And it, I think, detracted from the possibility of getting the votes to pass it but also made the failure particularly damaging to Joe Biden. Instead of having the failure redound against Republicans who were killing child tax credit, uh, universal pre-K, free community college, 
and all the other things that the bill was going to do. And the coverage of the Inflation Reduction Act was at one level helpful to the administration because it was, hey, they succeeded. They finally got Joe Manchin on board and then maybe finally got Kirsten Cinema on board to make it work. But I've seen very little coverage that has looked at the specifics of what's there and why it is significant. And of course, partly the reason for that is that most of the press, whether it's cable news or newspapers, are not really good at getting into and digging into substance. So it's good, I think, that we can use this to look at the words and the meaning of what actually is in the Inflation Reduction Act. So let's go ahead and get into some of these provisions. It's an ambitious uh, task ahead of us, Norm, but I think we're up, up to it. So I'll go ahead and just cover the way I think about any of these large, massive pieces of legislation. You've got uh, spending and savings. And I think it's worth highlighting where they spent money in this bill because, again, arguing that this is one of the most significant domestic policy bills, and I say this having worked on the ACA, because you have about $400 billion in spending on energy and climate, everything from tax credits, Department of Energy grants and loans, building efficiencies to help get the country back up to just get buildings in our country back up to speed and in the most energy efficient manner. So that totals about $400 billion. Then you have about another $100 billion that was spent to actually do some very important kind of extensions of subsidies for the Affordable Care Act, extension of expanding ACA subsidies that have been able to really help protect what I would say are some of the most vulnerable Americans. If you're of a certain poverty limit, you can qualify for Medicaid, but above a certain poverty limit, where it's still unattainable to just pay directly for individual insurance, there are important subsidies that really do allow for people to be able to purchase into the health insurance exchanges. And and then on top of that, there are some very important low-income subsidies for Part D, as in dog, in Medicare, which covers most of the country's oral drugs. Anybody on Medicare is more most likely to be on one of, of, of these medications that's covered by Part D, and then also vaccine coverage. So shocking as it might be, if anybody has gone out there and tried to get, for example, a shingle shot in a doctor's office, they might be slapped with a copay, and that doesn't help anybody. So vaccine coverage in certain it has been, a, I think, an important part of this that's separate, by the way, from paying for COVID vaccines. And then let's go through what our savings to pay for that. So we, I just chalked up about half a trillion dollars in spending that you have from the Inflation Reduction Act. Therefore, there must be savings for this. And I think this is exactly where there was much of the politics around what happened in the passage related to Kristen Cinema holding out for this carried interest loophole. But when truth be told, the bulk of the ability to save money actually did come from healthcare. So a $325 billion in healthcare savings from repealing a Trump-era drug rebate rule. We can go into some of the specifics around drugs in general, because there's also a very novel but long-talked-about negotiation of Medicare drug prices. So this is, I think, going to be something that's not only in healthcare a hot topic, but certainly many countries who have not done this similar type of drug negotiation are looking to what we're doing or not doing in order to try to copy us. And then there's also an inflation, a drug price inflation cap, and that saves us about $100 billion. And 
just to comment, I should say that this is over 10 years, kind of the traditional scoring window for these big pieces of legislation. So this isn't per year, this is over kind of the 2022 to 2031 time period. And then I mentioned some of the revenue sources around taxes, the carried interest, 15% corporate minimum tax. Anyway, those are, those are some of the pieces of, of what was in the Inflation Reduction Act. That corporate carried interest loophole that was $13 billion got removed. That was a way for Senator Sinema to sign on to this. But that was such a small number that you still saw a very large amount, about $800 billion in savings, so that the net deficit reduction is on the order, depending on exactly kind of how you calculate it, on the order of $155 billion to about $300 billion. And the reason I say that is because it has to do with the variability around the ACA subsidy extensions and the, and the dollar amounts. So it's a pretty incredible chunk of change. I see it, to your point, not as just a quote, inflation reduction is so loaded in terms of what people think that means. But when you break it down and start looking at how it's tackling these, what I would say are significant drivers in our budget, healthcare, energy, then you start to really understand what, what's uh, in this bill. Norm, your thoughts? So uh, let me, first of all, expand a little bit on some of the things that you've mentioned that are really historic here, and then add a few more. Democrats have been trying for 30 years or more to get Medicare with the power to negotiate drug prices. We know that the VA has been able to negotiate drug prices to some degree, and it's made a real difference. And uh, this will matter a lot for seniors. They also, of course, did get, at least for Medicare recipients, uh, that insulin will be capped at $35. That's not going to be true because of the way the negotiations worked for all other Americans who have diabetes, which is a killer in so many ways, including financially. But we know that people have died because they couldn't afford insulin. And it's an absolute outrage that something that is no longer a new drug on patent is so expensive and has had these markups. So these are big things that matter a lot. And we know that the subsidies for the Affordable Care Act were running out, that millions of Americans were going to end up having no ability to afford health insurance. So extending it, although they only did it for three years, is still a very big deal, and uh, one hopes that that will continue to be extended. A few words on the tax issues. You know, one of the things that a lot of Democrats wanted to do was to raise the rates for wealthy individuals. What we saw in the Trump tax cuts, Trump McConnell tax cuts of 2017, was they pretty dramatically reduced those rates. They've been reduced before. Democrats wanted to bring them back, not to the levels that we've had in previous decades. And let's remember that the maximum tax rate for wealthy people in the Eisenhower era was like 90%. Then it went down to 39.6. Now, there's an argument to be made, and Kristen Sinema made that argument forcefully, that if you raise the rates, these wealthy people with their fancy accountants can always find ways to get around it that a 15% minimum tax on corporations will make a big difference there, and that we have other ways of getting at wealthy taxpayers. 
And here I want to turn for a minute to what has become a very controversial provision, but ought not to be, which is greatly expanding the ability of the IRS to look for tax cheating. And we know the estimate is that about $160 billion a year of taxes under this system that we now have legitimately owned by the top 1% is evaded. This is cheating on taxes. And people get away with it now knowing that the IRS, which has systematically been hollowed out by Republicans over decades, cutting the funding, making it miserable for the accountants and the others, and the forensic accountants there to be able to do their jobs. If you're a billionaire, you know you're not going to be audited and you can get away with murder on your taxes. Now that they're going to have audits of significant numbers of them, not to make them pay more beyond what they owe, but to make them pay what they do owe, the right is going to DEFCON 1. They're stoking the fear of people in like uh, trench coats hiding out on the corner waiting for you to um, accidentally drop a dime. That's what it's sounding like on the right. And, and invading your home with an army of people who will, for the average person, uh, you know, basically take away your car and your home and maybe even your children. When this only applies to those making over $400,000. And again, it's about taking on cheating, blatant cheating. So this will be big, but it also means that the IRS, which has been woefully understaffed for a very long time, will actually be back and able to get returns processed earlier as well. So this is big stuff. You know, I was upset about the carried interest provision because I think it's outrageous. But as you say, it was a small sum of money. And the bigger thing is that corporations and wealthy individuals are going to be closer to having to pay their fair share, and that it pays for this act. Now, I do think we need to talk a little bit about the climate change provisions. And here, while it was horse trading with Joe Manchin, and we got some significant expansion of pipelines, of exploration uh, involving fossil fuels, protections for coal and some of these other fossil fuels, this was just a dramatic series of things to take on the climate to move us even more robustly towards electric vehicles, towards energy efficient appliances, towards moving to solar and wind and other uh, uh, of these resources. We're going to have 950 million new solar panels by 2030, 120,000 wind turbines, uh, 2,300 huge battery plants, a lot of cost and clean energy projects, cost-saving clean energy projects in rural cooperatives and a lot of other provisions and snuck in there as well was a provision that enables the Environmental Protection Agency explicitly legally to regulate pollution, which the Supreme Court had knocked out in the previous term for ridiculous reasons uh, as well. But when you've got Al Gore, and uh, the major figures in the climate world saying that this is the most sweeping and significant climate change legislation that we have seen, 
despite the fact that there are some people on the left saying, oh, look what it does. It gives more uh, leeway for the fossil fuel uh, industry as well, you know, displays first an ignorance of the legislative process and what you have to do to make something happen. But it also, I think, actually speaks quite well of Joe Manchin in this case, because he got a little for his state in the short run. But he really did enable this to move pretty dramatically forward towards uh, a clean ener- cleaner energy country and world. And one thing, just because uh, climate and, and uh, energy are not kind of my like familiar territories, uh, I also am kind of trying to source up my knowledge. Really, we're looking at how did they leverage these energy and climate tax incentives, to your point. As I read through the actual provisions, they really do kind of offer not just one type of incentive, but they're really leveraging, I think, the Inflation Reduction Act to incentivize the use of, uh, what, what did they call it? I think they called it uh, domestic content and placement in quote, identified communities. So trying to really make sure that low-income communities, which really have had very little of this type of innovation just on reputation, that there is actually taxpayers that can elect a direct pay option to monetize the credits and transfer to another entity, which I thought was very interesting. So for example, you can actually have a direct pay instead of a tax credit so that people who are at a certain income often don't benefit from tax credits because you have to actually then earn those wages in order to get that. And so I do think there's some great creative incentives that I haven't seen used in the federal government. And so to that extent that you can deploy these clean technologies, really lift the standards of some of the government subsidized like energy, housing and communities, I think it's incredible. I also shudder to think how this norm, the advances in the IRA on energy and climate, though, combined with kind of what we've seen the court do around the EPA it's very interesting that we're at a time where we actually have legislation that's far ahead innovation-wise than what it seems like we are able to do within the jurisdiction of the executive branch itself. And, and I, I, I just put that out there for listeners because it's another reminder that even in an era when we have kind of a, a rigged Supreme Court and an administration that's trying to kind of navigate its way through it, and we know all of this will change. Congress will change, White House will change, the court is not likely to change. So it makes it a very important part to have that legislative and executive branch humming as much as you can. And the IRA is a good example of that. So two points following on that. One is, it's very interesting that the tax credit uh, is for electric cars that are below $55,000 in price. And you know we've seen a lot of this commentary on Fox and elsewhere about how this is all about those $90,000 Teslas. It isn't something that's going to benefit the average person. We know that there are plenty of electric cars available that are uh, less costly, but this also is going to be a major incentive for consumers and auto companies to start to produce more affordable electric cars. And uh, it, the, interestingly, the auto industry is well uh, very much on board with this we're seeing that ford and uh gm and chrysler are really starting to move towards uh, mass production of electric vehicles and that means that we're going to see more charging stations and more innovation 
The second point is, and also I think a very important one, the the uh, climate deniers and the anti-environmentalists have always said that these are job killers, these policies. What we're already seeing is that the move to green energy is a move to give a jumpstart to the economy, and it actually creates a lot of jobs. And even in this last week, we've seen a half dozen big companies indicate that they're going to build large plants to produce batteries, to produce the solar panels at home that have we generally gave up that industry uh, to China, to actually do innovative work. And one of the things that I expect is going to happen is we're going to see this big investment in battery technology that's going to make batteries that have a larger capacity and eventually swappable batteries so that instead of having to go to a place and wait for even the short amount of time, 30 minutes, 15 minutes, that you can swap your battery out and do it uh, just as quickly as if you're now pumping gas at a gas station. Over time, it's going to be a genuine game changer in uh, the country. It's gone uh, under the radar, I think, in a way that is uh, not untypical, but unfortunate. Let's actually shift then, if you don't mind, to the area that uh, I've spent the most time on, which is the healthcare. I mentioned these ACA kind of tax credits as well as subsidies that were extended by three years make it much more likely that lower income, these are not rich people. These are people who are absolutely kind of, even though they're beyond the 400% of the federal poverty limit are clearly like at the margins of people who would probably not be able to afford insurance whatsoever. And we have data to support that. So I think these like subsidies, tax credits are critical to the maintenance of what we know has worked in the Affordable Care Act, which is to expand access. And so I think that's I, I hope, and there has been memos circulated amongst Democrats and Republicans going beyond those three years. I think this becomes a numbers game and it's just about the money. And I, I have a good feeling that if we feel like we're in a better place economically in our country in two years, three years, we'll see another extension of that. But the big player in the health section, Norm, was the Medicare drug pricing negotiation. And I want to, there's been a lot of myths also on the right about what's inside of this, that this is going to result in you know, the elimination of research and innovation as we know it, and that there will be no more new drugs for cancer and et cetera, et cetera. A couple of things. Number one, it actually doesn't, drug price negotiation does not start until 2026. And I comment on this because there's a skeptic in me that there's a lot of distance between now and 2026. And when we passed the ACA, we had in there the, uh, what we had called an IPAB I can't even remember the name, the what it stood for, Independent Payment Advisory Board. And it was su- something that was supposed to get triggered when there was a certain degree of increase in, in expenditures in the government. And it would have a, an advisory board appointed by Congress that would be independent thought leaders, think economists. There were a certain number of constituents and patients that needed to be on there. But that would be a group that would help to advise the secretary of HHS on mechanisms to reduce cost. That effectively got killed in the legislation after the ACA. So you could imagine that something like the drug pricing negotiation, which is not set to begin until 2026, and only to begin with Part D is in dog drugs, so the oral drugs only in Medicare, that that could actually 
get killed and somehow not exist. So that, and there's a skeptic in me that thinks that there's a possibility that that would happen. But once it starts in 26, the first two years, they do any of the, based on Part D spending, drug, HHS has authority to negotiate prices for initially 10 drugs in Part D. And then in the second year, 15 drugs in Part D. Then in 2028, a combined Part B, which are physician-administered drugs, and Part D, which are the oral drugs, based on cost. All of it, negotiation is set based on kind of a formula that they have for looking at the highest cost drugs, and then so on and so on. And basically from 2029 and beyond, each year there would be 20 drugs based on kind of the combined Part B and D spending. Um, and people have asked me, like, what kinds of drugs are these? Uh, drugs brand names are Humira, a very potent anti-inflammatory drug that's used in a number of areas, including rheumatoid arthritis, a number of cancer drugs. Now, here's the rub. Many of these drugs that we're talking about that are high spend actually have their patents expiring in some of these time frames. And so it'll be an interesting dynamic where HHS could make a decision about a drug in, let's say, 2028. And then that drug has their patent expiring the next year, which often is an opportunity for lower cost entrants to come in. That's traditionally what we've seen. However, it's a incredible, I think, just to couple, as I mentioned, I, I have that healthy skepticism until implementation actually happens. A lot could happen. And then number two, it will be very interesting. There was this kind of a, a little bit of a silence from pharma in the beginning months ago. And then I think as it was real, and it was very clear that this was incredibly supported in a bipartisan manner, there was these kind of threats that kind of got lobbed out from different players inside of pharma, like, you know, those of you who cast a vote, yes, beware, et cetera. So it'll be interesting to see if we follow the spending kind of if or how that plays out, because this was one of the most popular provisions and was something that, you know, you didn't even really hear much contention from uh, Mansion or Cinema, for example. And then there is a very important part of uh, kind of drug rebates, a delay basically in something that Donald Trump had put in where they would give rebates for the drugs at kind of point of sale versus what happens now, which is that health insurance plans and uh, pharmacy benefit managers kind of go into a negotiation on how much the drug is acquired and how much it's cost and most of the time, that's all an opaque process to those of us who go to like a pharmacy and fill that drug. But there now is going to be some level setting so that basically you have to both adjust your rebates in order to cover any increases in cost, but that there that a manufacturer that does not pay a rebate in a situation where the price of the drug is increasing faster than inflation, the manufacturer would actually have a civil monetary penalty wielded against the manufacturer. So this is like a very important, I think, part that's a signal that not only is the government in the process of negotiating drugs, but also these inflation-based rebates could actually apply to many drugs. When you look at the average increase in cost of drugs and compare that, not even to just inflation, general inflation, but like medical expenditure inflation, that most cost increases are in the double digits. And so this is, I think, a very wonky but important provision. And then I, I think just uh, I mentioned the vaccines in the beginning because it's outside of what we would think about as prescription drugs, but it's certainly part of what Medicare Part D pays for. And it eliminates the cost sharing for vaccines that are recommended by the CDC's Advisory Committee on Vaccines. 
in this era of COVID, it's hard to imagine that we actually charge people for vaccines, but we did. And the Inflation Reduction Act eliminates that. And I think, and then you highlighted the insulin cap. So I'll just say that um, I can't be more thrilled to see something finally being done about insulin norm and so much more that needs to be done. So that's the summary on the drug side. Anything you want to add to that that I forgot to mention? No, I would just say this. We're heading into a time where there are going to be a lot of additional layered health challenges for the population. Long COVID is going to create complications for large numbers of people. There'll be mental health consequences, but also a lot of physical ones. Some of that will uh, interact, I'm sure, with diabetes and some of the other diseases that are out there. We have a population that continues to age, and that's why some of these provisions in Medicare become particularly important. But the ability to get people insured and have affordable insurance, and we now have an uninsured rate that's down to 8%, which is uh, as low as it has ever been, I believe. We just can't underscore enough the impact that that's going to have on the country in a, in a positive way. If we had larger numbers of people uninsured, if these subsidies had gone away, to pick one uh, element of this plan that's particularly important, we would have had our emergency rooms flooded even more. We would have had more people dying prematurely because they wouldn't be able to get to doctors or get the uh, medications they need or have any coverage. And that's going to have, I think, a, a big positive impact on the society going forward including in our productivity. And that's not always taken into account when the economists begin to look at what the impact of legislation will be in the years ahead. It's so funny. I actually interacted, and I'm sure you have too, with members of Congress who had not been part of passing the ACA. And so therefore, there were a significant number of staff even on some of the senators in some of the Senate committee offices and senators' offices that had never had anything to do with the ACA. And when the topic came up about, you know, strengthening the ACA, because I had always kind of thought the next big domestic legislation we would see before the the Inflation Reduction Act would be kind of an ACA 2.0. It could have been the Trump plan that kind of repealed and replaced it with something else, or it could have been in a in a Democratic administration and Democratic Congress, like something strengthening. I actually think the IRA represents that. In fact, in many ways, it is a little bit, it's like a smaller version of what I would say is an ACA 2.0, but the staff were, there was a lot of education that needed to happen. And I think you're reminding, hopefully even our listeners, that the ACA made substantial impacts on reducing the percentage of people, not just who are uninsured, but underinsured by strengthening. I know we got a lot of criticism for making those essential benefits part of what every carrier had to do. But you know what, Norm, 15 years later now, or 12 years later, and look, you don't hear people complaining about, oh, well, now we have all these essential categories of things we have to cover. And in fact, through the IRA, we're actually now making those benefits better. If you think about strengthening our Part D, our Part B benefits, about everything we offer to seniors in Medicare, this is, I couldn't ask for more to concentrate on, especially in the next decade. I just hope it sticks. That's my, my point in drawing out the timeline with the drugs. A lot can happen between now and 2026. And so I'm hoping that it's in our favor and <laughs> not against it. Another reason I know is if we've exhausted uh, the limits of people who need reasons to vote. So with that, I want to thank Norm, who 
graciously also did our bonus content, which we will hear in this section now. But this is the time when we close. For our listeners who are general general listeners, urge you to become members. And it's helpful as we're continually trying to re- improve the show and relaunch this. If you can rate and review and subscribe to the feed on your favorite podcast player. We hope we can share this with some of your friends on social media. And if you liked it and want more conversation, become a member where you can get part of that bonus segment where Norm will cover a number of topics, including a recent fiery speech by President Biden, where he called out MAGA and Donald Trump for the erosion of our democracy. Words Matter is a production of the DSR Network, and our executive producer is Chris Cutnor, and our producer of our show is the wonderful Grant Haver. Next episode will be in your podcast feeds on September 9th. See you then.